This is episode 269 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is powered by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. Get access to over 150 additional episodes of our show not available on public listing platforms, as well as behind-the-scenes extras that let you look right into the studio where we're making the show each week, all when you sign up to be a patron at patreon.com slash thatshakespearelife. Hi, I'm Nini Mikhaila, historical costumier, tailor and author of The Tudor Tailor, Reconstructing 16th Century Dress. Another great method for studying the history of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. That's where the, the, the modern term bodice comes from. It comes from bodies. But by the end of the 16th century, they start to become stiffened and, and boned with materials like bents, which are reeds, and whalebone, which is uh, baleen from the mouth of a baleen whale. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Today, we're talking about undergarments. <gasps> Victorians shall pass out. In the 16th and 17th century, fashion was rife with gorgeous and elaborate outerwear. But the underwear, hose, and supportive underclothing was just as intricate and just as intentional. Shakespeare's plays from this period suggest that clothing styles were a way to identify someone's nationality. There were specific clothings assigned to different countries. Shakespeare mentions Dutch, French, German, and Spanish by the cut of their clothes. Slops and short cloaks are called out in Much Ado About Nothing and the Henry plays. Women's clothing and specifically their scandalous undergarments are mentioned too when Shakespeare writes about a pair of bodies, hose and sleeve, and a farthingale. 16th century English men and women had underclothing designed to deal with the practical realities of using the bathroom, avoiding body odor, supportive garments like bras and menstrual pads, and there's even record of 16th and 17th century lingerie type items, although not the same thing as what you would think of today. Here today to walk us through the history of undergarments for men and women in Shakespeare's lifetime, as well as night clothes and specifically those specialty styles of practical linen for Shakespeare's lifetime is our guest and dress historian, Sarah Bendel. Sarah A. Bendel is a material culture and dress historian at the Institute for Humanities and Social Sciences. Her work focuses on the role of gender, particularly the place of women in the production, trade, and consumption of global commodities and fashionable consumer goods between 1500 and 1800. She is author of Shaping Femininity, Foundation Garments, the Body, and Women in Early Modern England, published in 2021 by Bloomsbury. Hello, Sarah. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Shakespeare mentions specific kinds of women's clothing in his plays, like a pair of bodies as well as a farthingale. Please explain these pieces of underclothing and how they fit into a standard set of underclothes for a woman in Shakespeare's lifetime. Yeah, sure. So um, 
Farthingales and bodies are what we term foundation garments. So they're these structured undergarments that really created the silhouette of an Elizabethan woman. So um, farthingales, well, there's different reiterations of them, but they're basically structured underskirts. So their original uh, version in the early part of the 16th century um, is a Spanish farthingale, so it's a hooped underskirt, similar to what later 19th century crinolines, for example, look like. So it's just got hoops in a skirt. It's like a conical shape. And by the end of the 16th century, so in Shakespeare's time, these farthingales in England, the new styles are referred to as French farthingales. So these are sort of rolls that sit around the waist or another name for the smaller versions of them are literally bum rolls or another type of French farthingale is, how would you describe it? It's it's like a, a hooped structure that sits sort of horizontal off, off the hips and then sort of the skirts sort of plateau down from that. So it's a very distinct look, Elizabethan, late Elizabethan look that I'm sure most people who are listening, if um, they are familiar with portraiture from that period, you'd be able to identify what a French farthingale is. You said that it was called a bum roll. I mean, is this like the Kardashian clothing of the 16th century? (laughs) Is it intended to enhance your behind? Yeah, yeah. So it's exactly the, you know, trends come and go and the, the trend for big bums has always come and gone, as we know. So yes, it's literally designed to sort of increase I mean, it it depends, there's different sort of looks, but yes, it's exactly that to increase the size of your bum. And there's a lot of, not in Shakespeare, but in sort of his contemporaries. So Ben Johnson, Thomas Middleton, all those types of dramatists, there's lots of jokes cracked at the expense of bum rolls. I'm going to have to go look those up now and put them in the, in the show notes so we can make sure we understand the context. Now you started to say something about the pair of bodies as well. Yeah, so bodies are sort of this complementary garment to farthingales. So they're the easiest way to describe them is they're really early corsetry. So in the in the early 16th century, bodies just referred to and the upper part part of a woman's dress, so a garment, basically a bodice. That's where the 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 modern term bodice comes from. It comes from bodies. But by the end of the 16th century, they start to become stiffened and, and boned with materials like bents, which are reeds, and whalebone, which is uh, baleen from the mouth of a baleen whale. So it's really at the end of the 16th century. So the, the one of the earliest references, obviously, we find to it in England is in Elizabeth I's wardrobe accounts, and that is about... 15, the early 1590s, 1592, I think. And that it's just become more and more popular from there. So yeah, it's a really an early form of corset. And until the end of the 17th century, it's called bodies. And then we call them stays. And then we call them corsets. It's so nice to think of Elizabeth I being on the cutting edge of fashion there and being among the first to make this style of clothing popular. Oh, yeah. I mean, she, these were really elite styles of clothing. So not every woman at, in Shakespeare's time would have, would have worn these garments. I mean, later, obviously in the century, as these garments sort of filter down, more people wear them, but definitely in Shakespeare's time, it was a sort of upper middle class to elite garment. And Elizabeth, yeah, she's totally on the forefront of fashion. And these garments are really all to do with aristocratic ideas of power and of wealth. So farthingales increase the amount of fabric that you need to wear over them. Bodies are to do with ideas of deportment and upright, straight bodies. 
So they complement aristocratic ideas of what it means to be a king or a queen in this period. Men's bodies also, men's doublets, for example, are quite heavily stiffened and boned as well. So she definitely embraced these fashions because they served her political agenda as well. Speaking of images that you need to project, we have the image of Shakespeare today that I don't think would be complete without those poofy shorts that I feel like all the animations of Shakespeare have him wearing. Explain these kinds of shorts for us and the hose that they were with them. Was this a standard set of clothes for men in the 16th and 17th century or did this get applied to Shakespeare sometime later? No, so this was all um, standard clothing for men. So as in, you know, women's clothing, there's different styles. So, yeah, you're totally right. So men, their um, lower half of their garment was always hose or they're later called breeches. So they had basically two parts. You had your upper hose and your nether hose or lower hose. So the lower hose were what we would now call stockings. So that is sort of what you see on mostly the lower parts of the legs. And then the upper hose were these, yeah, breeches basically. So there's different styles during the period. Um, you know, early in the 16th century, you have cod pieces, for example, that are integrated into hose. So that is, if anyone doesn't know what a cod piece is, it, it's a rather large bulbous appendage on the front of men's hose. Let's just put it that way. I'm gonna have to say, when you see this in portraiture, you'll know exactly what we're talking about. And exactly. I, will, I will put some portraits from the period in the show notes so you can see this one. Henry VIII, very famous for these. So, yes. Yeah, they're hard to miss. Um, <laughs> but by the end of the 16th century, they're not as common anymore. So, the sort of the hose that we see Shakespeare sort of wearing in depictions of him are what we would. So there's like things like Venetian hose, but there's our trunk hose. So they're the really big, poofy pants, basically, breeches. And they get made fun of quite a lot in the same way that women's um, farthingales get made fun of. But yeah, so basically that is like the lower half of clothing for men. Um, men would have worn a shift, which is a long sort of linen garment that covers it's an undergarment. Women wore them too. And they would just, they were quite long and they would tuck the bottoms between their legs into their breeches and their breeches would actually be, so there was no waistbands or elastic or string. They would actually be pointed. So tied to the doublet. So it's sort of actually a bit of a onesie by the time (laughs) men point it to their doublet. So you're mentioning this long linen undergarment. Is that the same thing as what we think of today as underwear? And are underwear and pajamas going to be the same thing? Are they sleeping in this long undergarment or is it just for wearing under your clothes? You could sleep in it, but basically pajamas, are. there's very little difference between a shift and then a night. So basically in the in the written record, people will refer to their shifts in various different ways. So but usually you get a distinction between the day shift and the night shift, if that makes sense. So, but they're essentially the same sort of garment. So they're this linen undergarment that has usually sort of long sleeves. It comes down to, it's a very, it is, you know, it's sort of a square shaped, it's very shapeless, I should say. And it sort of comes down to your knees. And yes, you would wear that under your clothing. Some people may have had separate night shifts, and which may have had a little bit of different embellishment. But this was the basic underwear for men and women during Shakespeare's life. So what about things like lingerie? Was that such a thing for the 16th century? Did they have negligees or did everybody just sleep in a shift? 
No, so there's not really lingerie in the way that we think of lingerie now. So yeah, for a woman's dress, for example, the the basic layers are the shift and the stockings and the garters, and then you have some sort of petticoat, which petticoat at this time could be a skirt or it's usually a skirt with an attached bodice. So the bodice could be stiffened or not. So a petticoat bodies basically is what it's called. And then you would have either another petticoat of the top, which was a bit of an outer skirt um, and a waistcoat. That's probably more what everyday wear was. So maybe Shakespeare's wife, maybe that would have been her everyday attire. And then you also could have had a gown, which would have gone over top. So obviously for elite women, that was more common everyday attire, but for everyone else, that would have been more of a, a nicer, best dress. But no, you don't really have lingerie in the same way. I mean, the only equivalent I can think of for something that would function similarly to lingerie in terms of if we're thinking about gifting it and it being a bit of, you know, to do with, um, you know, eroticism and romantic would be something called a busk, which was a long piece of wood, metal or horn that was placed down the front of bodies. So this becomes a bit more common later in the 17th century, but the sources from the late 16th century that talk about it. And men would often inscribe sayings of love and other types of devotion onto them and gift them to women. So they became a bit of a a love token. But interestingly, so in modern lingerie, so bras, for example, have usually have a bit of ribbon in the middle of the bra between um, the cups. So that actually dates back to the 16th century when this busk would be tied into the bodies with a piece of ribbon. So that's a fun fact that we still have that in modern lingerie. What a neat thing to know exactly where it comes from, because I, I did wonder if there was history to that feature. Now, the outerwear of women, as you've outlined for us here, is quite extensive with these multiple layers, thick fabric, and a substantial size. What was the practicality of walking around in an outfit like this? I mean, how did they like go to the restroom or move around in, in practical ways during the day? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a lot more clothing than we're used to wearing now. So I always sort of, I guess, hinge what I'm about to say on the idea that our ideas of comfort and what we expect from clothing now are very different to what people expected in the past. But, you know, people will look at something like a farthingale and be like, oh, that's so impractical. But it actually is quite practical because it actually, so if you think there's these layers of clothing, particularly all these layers of skirts, if you're trying to walk, the skirts will get all tangled between your legs. Or if you're trying to dance, for example, if you're in Elizabethan court and you're trying to dance, these skirts are going to get um, all tangled around your legs. But a farthingale actually stops that because it actually creates the structure around your legs, which allow your legs to move freely and the skirts to sort of sit on either side of them. But I've done reconstructed experiments as part of my work and So I've reconstructed a couple of farthingales and I found that they're actually very light. They're very flexible. So the materials they were using at the time, for example, a Spanish farthingale, which Elizabeth would have worn earlier in her reign, it's made from hoops of or ropes, they call them, of of reeds. And those are incredibly flexible and lightweight. They actually surprised me when I made them from the materials they would have been making them from. I was very surprised by how flexible they actually are. So, and then whalebone is is similar. It's a bit more like modern plastic. So it's got strength, but it's also got a lot of flexibility. So yeah, they're actually like not impractical at all. And I mean, bodies, depending on the style, can be a bit more impractical than others. But 
you get used to them and they're quite easy to sort of breathe in, to do different things in. Um, actually, for example, there was a dance at the Elizabethan court called the Volta and the busk in the front of the bodies actually helped in that dance. So men would lift women up by their busk. And there's actually descriptions of that, that the busk is really useful for that as well. I wouldn't have considered the various pieces of clothing as useful to specific dances, but it's a nice perspective to remember that different and unusual for what we might wear today doesn't mean different and unusual for the 16th century. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, people in the 16th century might look at things that we wear now and say, oh, that's, they may have the similar opinion. Why do they wear that? And be just as shocked. Absolutely. Now, speaking of practical issues, I was wondering if you could tell us about how women dealt with menstruation in the 16th century. Are there specific items of clothing that were designed to help with managing that? Yeah. So this is a very, I guess, neglected area of study. And it's because the sources just don't really exist. So we know that the main way that women, and so what does exist is references to rags, which, you know, that's where I guess the modern sort of slang term in some countries for menstruation comes from. So we know that women used rags, but we don't know exactly how they used these rags to obviously soak up their menstrual blood. So where I guess we think or what we think may have happened, there was probably some sort of, I mean, similar to in the early 20th century, there was some sort of belt that women used to wear. There may have been something similar that they were wearing. They may have been wearing something similar to diapers, for example. We know by the 18th century, though, I mean, there is a court case where a woman and Abby Cox on YouTube has actually done a bit of a week in the, you know, a week of experimental history with this. So if anyone's interested, we also think women may have used their aprons. So they may have put their aprons under their shift or on top of their shift under their clothes and sort of tucked that like men did with their shifts, tucked it between their legs and it would have soaked it up that way. But I wish I had a better answer. I think a lot of people do. It's just not something that is really well, it wasn't ever written down. So we we just don't know. Another practical question I had about women's dress was about bras, because I know when we look at portraitures from this period, often it the front of the dress is very open or very low. And it seems like it would be impractical to have a bra on underneath that, that maybe the dress was designed to be supportive in that way. But what can you tell us about that? You were saying that maybe the bodies functions as the bra for women? Yeah, so bras are really a modern invention. Well, I mean, I shouldn't say that. So in the medieval period, we have garments that are create not creatively at all, sorry, in English, called breast bags. Um, not a very <laughs> uh, nice term. That sounds that like something we left a teenager in charge of coming up with. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> but that is what they're referred to. And for a long time, historians didn't really know what, what exactly this garment was until um, I think around 2008, there was an archaeological excavation in what is now Austria and they unearthed all of these textiles and they did find basically what looked like modern bras or sort of long line bras, but they don't stick, they're not around in this period. So the modern bra, it's sort of, it's forgotten and then it gets rediscovered at the end of the 19th, start of the 20th century and what we know as a bra and this sort of, again, practicality when people say, well, why did pe- why did women for the better half of 400 years wear corsetry? 
it's so impractical. And I actually say, well, no, actually, it's very practical because it's breast support. That's basically, I mean, alongside these elite ideas of deportment and good posture, it basically gives you breast support and back support. So, you know, a modern bras, for example, are not actually very good for women with quite large chests, whereas a corset will give you both breast and back support. So, yes, so bras weren't worn in this period. It's really you've got your shift. If you're thinking about the upper half of the body, you've got your shift, you've got your pair of bodies, whether they are boned or not. Usually, you know, common women would have had still a pair of bodies, but they may have just been made from layers of thick fabric, which still would have given you support. And then you've got your waistcoat or your gown, et cetera, over the top of that. So there you go. Clothing designers take note. We may have taken a step backwards in women's fashion over the last 400 (laughs) years. We should look into that some more. Speaking of diving into things further, Sarah, what can you tell us about your favorite books or resources we should use if we want to explore the history of undergarments and underclothing for both men and women from Shakespeare's lifetime? Where are some good places to begin? Yeah, so I mean, I my favorite resources for this period. I mean, the first and very easily accessible one would be the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. So Fit NYC, their fashion history timeline. So they have essays online for each decade of uh, Western fashion, basically. So from the medieval period all the way through to the mid to late 20th century. So that is a really good, I mean, I I often refer to those essays just to sort of, if I'm encountering a new time period, just to get a, a brief overview. So they're really, really good. Susan Vincent has a book. It's been out for quite a while, but you can still find copies around. I think they still publish it. So her book, Dressing the Elite, Clothes in Early Modern England, So that is a really good overview of men and women's dress during the 16th and 17th centuries, as well as all the social and cultural meanings of that. And then for those who maybe want to reconstruct 16th century dress or just learn more about it, the book is great for both. It's Ninia Michaela and Jane Malcolm Davies, The Tudor Tailor, Reconstructing 16th Century Dress. So they're my, uh, I guess, my top three if we're talking about clothing in Shakespeare's time. These are excellent resources. Thank you so much. I will place links to these in the show notes for today. So hang on for the URL for that. And you can explore these resources directly from there. Nina Mikhaila has been a guest on that Shakespeare Life talking about other aspects of Tudor clothing. So we'll also link you to her episode and you can check that out as well. Now, Sarah, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. Oh, this is, yeah, it's such a hard question. (laughs) I might keep it on theme, and I say the book that I would probably reach for the most in my research is the Fashion Dictionary. So there's a really great book it's published now by Bloomsbury I think and it's basically a dictionary of fashion history because there's so many terms and so many words that we just don't use anymore or that maybe we do use but have a very different meaning to the past so I know that's probably a bit boring but that would be the book that I would take I think I think that's an excellent choice for your desert island selection so what's next for you what are you working on now that you're excited about yeah, so my obviously my first book, I mean, the other book I would recommend would be my book, Shaping Femininity, which is all about foundation garments. But I'm working on my next book at the moment, which is 
looking at the, so it's called the Women Who Clothe the Stuart Queens. So I'm looking at the wardrobe accounts of five Stuart Queens in England. So basically the the, seven, the long 17th century, so 1603 to 1714. And I'm using their wardrobe accounts to look at everybody behind the scenes who was particularly obviously women who were managing, caring, making and selling their clothing. So there's, uh, I think a lot of people are probably surprised to hear that women didn't always make clothing. Actually, in the 16th century, it was a male profession. So there wasn't really a thing as a dressmaker. Women maybe made linen goods, seamstresses did as well. But um, outer clothing was really a man's job. And that and that was because um, it was controlled by guilds, which were sort of there to protect men's working rights. And it's during the 17th century that a huge change starts to occur in the fashion marketplace. More and more women start to become dressmakers. Some are trained as tailors. Um, you get the rise of milliners. So I'm using, yeah, these queen's wardrobes to look at the queens a bit themselves, but it's a bit of an upstairs, downstairs history. So, But mostly to look at everything that's going on behind the scenes to to clothe them and to make them look the way they do. Well, you're absolutely right. I know I'm surprised to learn that it was typically a man's industry to be a clothier. That's fun information. And I'm excited to see this project come to fruition and to read your book when it's finally published. Sarah, thank you so much for taking us through the history of fashion and the clothing terms that we find in Shakespeare's plays. This has really been a fun look at clothing that was just as much fun for us to learn about as it was for playwrights to make fun of in the 16th century. I appreciate you being here to talk with us today. Thank you so much for having me. If you like the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a comment and a rating on the platform you're listening from today. Every rating and comment that you leave on your listening platform helps other Shakespeareans find our show and join us for all the fun each week. Now, if you'd like to see some of the images of the clothing pieces that we talked about today, be sure to stop by the show notes for today's episode. Inside the show notes is where I've put archival images as well as period portraits, along with direct links to all of the resources and history content that you heard us mention in today's conversation. Find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 269. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 269. If you'd like to go behind the scenes with us, help support our show, and be a part of the making of That Shakespeare Life here each week, then consider becoming a patron. Patrons get access to over 150 additional episodes of our show available in our back catalog. You can listen to as many as you want from the patrons-only RSS feed. In addition to our back catalog, patrons who support the show are treated to behind-the-scenes extras, including sneak peeks at upcoming guests, the chance to submit your own questions to be asked during an interview, and bonus episodes recorded only for patrons. There is a lot of Shakespeare history, fun, crafts, games, and more. Find all of these things packed into our Patreon page at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.